Is this the human race of the future? Or is this the Morlocks, fiendish creatures who live in a weird underground world? And the Eloi, the tranquil sunshine people, who the Morlocks dominate and maintain like cattle, luring them below with the hypnotic wail of the sirens to feed upon them in cannibalistic horror. Hello and welcome to Here Read This. My name's Ash. Um, this is the first episode of series three. Um, in the next sort of series of episodes, we are going to go back in time. We're going to go and look at some of the stories and books about uh, King Arthur. We're going to compare those to the stories of the English kings as told by Shakespeare. Um, along the way, we'll meet familiar faces like Robert Louis Stevenson and Arthur Conan Doyle. Uh, we'll also meet lots of new writers like Christopher Marlowe, Alfred Lord Tennyson, John Steinbeck and J.R.R. Tolkien. But first, in order to get there, we're going to need a time machine, which is why today Adam and I are clambering into the first invention of H.G. Wells. So... What are we talking about? <laughs> what's, what's first? <laughs> what are we actually going to talk about? An actual book. <clears throat> An actual book. Yeah. Um, the first book... Of Mr. H.G. Wells, The Time Machine. The Time Machine. Yeah. Published in 1895, The Time Machine, an invention, is the story of an unnamed time traveller who cobbles together a machine out of ivory and quartz that allows him to traverse the fourth dimension. Arriving in the year 802,701, he discovers with dawning horror that the human species has branched into two subsets. The elfin, innocent Eloy, living in a new golden age, and the subterranean Morlocks, who farm them for meat. The book coined the phrase Time Machine, and its vision of time travel can be recognised in many books and films that it inspired. The jerking sun became a streak of fire, a brilliant arch, in space the moon a fainter fluctuating band. And I could see nothing of the stars, save now and then a brighter circle flickering in the blue. Minute by minute the white snow flashed across the world and vanished, and was followed by the bright brief green of spring. This is the traveller's description of his journey to the year 802701, a date which may have been chosen simply for how removed it sounds. Uh, it doesn't even really sound like a year, it sounds to me like a landline. But others have suggested Wells made a specific calculation. His protagonist estimates that he has time-travelled through 40 cycles of the astronomical Great Year, which in Wells' day was thought to be 20,000 years. Now, if you take 1895 and add 40 cycles of 20,000, you get to 801894, which is a bit too close to be a fluke. And we can forgive the traveller if he undershot, given that he was using one of those early time machines before they worked out all the kinks. The novel might have changed the timescape, but stories featuring time travel had been around long before Wells. There is the biblical story of the seven sleepers who take a nap and awake 300 years later. And similarly, there is Washington Irving's story of a Rip Van Winkle in time. And of course, Ebenezer Scrooge jumping between past and future like a Mardi Tardis. Before Wells came along, these stories all shared one thing in common. The time traveller was at the mercy of a god, a ghost, or just sleeping in. What Wells introduced was the machine. The traveller stopped being a passive passenger and became instead the pilot. What do you think of the popular image of the time machine as that sort of seat with the levers and the giant wheel behind it? Is the wheel in the book? 
I don't think there's ever really a solid, proper, good description of the time machine. There's a description of what it's made of, but it's like ivory yeah. and another a couple of minerals. Yeah, but, but it's it, not. It doesn't describe anything near. And it has levers. It has levers because crucially, the levers get. But I think that anybody anybody who hasn't should look up what the sort of media interpretation of the time machine is. Yeah, it looks sort of like a. You know those boats they used to cross the swamps in Louisiana with the big fans on the back. Oh yeah, yeah. Kind of looks a bit like one of those. There's a Bond film with a chase scene with those, isn't there? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Does someone end up going in the fan? Yeah. Yeah, of course. Wells was writing before science fiction had an identity. It wasn't until 1926 when Hugo Gernsback defined the genre as a charming romance intermingled with scientific fact and prophetic vision. Scientific romance was the term of the time and was applied to works by people like Wells, Jules Verne and Charles Howard Hinton, from whom Wells may have first come across the phrase fourth dimension. In Hinton's work, this was not time, but a a spatial dimension, and was jumped on by paranormal enthusiasts as a way of explaining appearances of ghosts and other phenomena. When H.G. Wells was writing his novel, there was widespread interest in the paranormal. And if you want to hear more about how Arthur Conan Doyle got entangled in the seance scene, check out our episode on his life from, um, from about a year ago. This atmosphere of rational Victorian science fending off paranormal hucksterism is evoked in The Time Machine as is the most famous scientific issue of the time, what Wells called the quickening of thought, provided by Charles Darwin. Wells was annoyed at those who took Darwin's theories as simply a species clap on the back, writing, the path of life, so frequently compared to some steadily rising mountain slope, is far more like a footway worn by leisurely wanderers in an undulating country. What he depicts in the year 802701 is the destiny of a species that does sit back and relax. It is a critique of a ruling class that sleeps on a lower one for its labour, and a critique also of a decadent art movement that had more of an aesthetic interest than a social one. It's obviously a seminal book, one that arrived fittingly just at the right moment in history and has survived the test of time. Its legacy is evidenced by its huge influence, several sequels written by other authors and a handful of movies. There's also plenty of works described as literary reposts to the time machine, such as Ian Foster's The Machine Stops and Brave New World by Aldous Huxley. Although I have just read um, The Machine Stops and I'm not quite sure if it's fair to describe it as an out-and-out repost of the time machine. I could see the events in um, Foster's story occurring midway between the time travellers 1895 and 807-201 where... uh, Oh no, it's not that, it's 802-701 where he ends up. The story almost reads like a, a, a catastrophe on the way, if you like. The main difference, to me, it seems to be that Forster's uh, equivalents of the Eloy kind of hang on to culture. They lecture each other at a distance on wildly disparate topics for all of ten minutes at a time, which is absolutely nothing like uh, podcasting. And Whereas the humans we um, meet in Wells' novel have uh, long let culture die. It had been published before in Bits, Yep. Um, under the title Chronic Argonauts, which is uh, great. <laughs> That's a fantastic name. <laughs> it's much pulpier, isn't it? Yeah. But then uh, was published properly in 1895. Do you know who published it first? No. W.E. Henley, Okay. who was a collaborator of um, RLS. Oh, so and here an we old, go. Back an old, in, yeah, an back old uh, writing buddy of his. Yep. They collaborated on the play um, Deacon Brody. Yep. And they were kind of... Um, well, I was about to say lifelong friends, but they actually had a, a, a big falling out. Mm-hmm. Um, Henley didn't approve of, well, I was about to say Stevenson's fanny, but you know what I mean, <laughs> yeah. his wife. Um, and then there was some kind of uh, plagiarism 
accusations to do with uh, um, something that his wife wrote, Henley's wife. But um, anyway, we're getting far off um, the time machine. We're getting far away from the chronic shall, argonauts. <laughs> shall we um, go old school with this? And can I ask you, when did you first read The Time Machine? I first read The Time Machine when I was about 13. Okay. When I was getting into my sci-fi phase. When I just... I'd probably seen The Time Bandits. Mm-hmm. And I think I'd probably asked my dad... Time travel's interesting. Yeah. And probably gave me this. It's probably how I got my hands he on it. He disappeared out the room, returned the room. looking ragged. <laughs> <laughs> with a with a with a, a strangely pristine copy of Son, it. don't start reading time travel stories. <laughs> it works out terribly for you. And then my other father walks in the other door. <laughs> so the story begins with the time traveller in a quite blase fashion, bringing out his miniature time machine and showing it to his guests, who are all distinguished men of some kind or another. There's a provincial mayor, a psychologist, a medical man, and a well-known editor, as well as a man called Philby and the narrator, Mr. Hillier. This group of slightly Freemasony types watch as the time traveller sends his prototype forward in time to be lost forever. It's an effective but quite expensive way to get your point across. But luckily, he has a full-size machine in the back and announces he plans to use it soon to travel through time himself. And I love some of the details of how it runs. At one point, it needs just one more drop of oil on the quartz rod to get up and running. A week later, the Freemasony types reconvene at his house where the time traveller is not to be found. They have a letter from him saying, do start dinner without me if I'm late. Oh, and we discover that his maid is called Mrs. Watchit. It is a nice throwaway little pun. Then the time traveller duly appears, looking pretty haggard and worse for wear. He was in an amazing plight. His coat was dusty and dirty and smeared with green down the sleeves. His hair disordered, and it seemed to me greyer, either with dust or dirt or because its colour had actually faded. His face was ghastly pale. His chin had a brown cut on it, a cut half-heeled. His expression was haggard and drawn, as if by intense suffering. But this is classed as one of his scientific romances, isn't it? Uh-huh. Along with um, The Island of Dr Moreau, Invisible Man, which remains my all-time favourite of his. <laughs> And then is it uh, War in the Air and War in, War in the Worlds? Yes. And one other that I always forget. I can't remember what the other one is. I think either, there's six or five or six. Scientific romances. What do you think of that? Jules Verne, I think. Jules Verne? Scientific. Or, or he, he at least writes romantic science fiction in a more, the more artistic meaning of the word romantic. Mm. I was going to say, and it, it, there isn't a great deal of romance, actually. Well, not, not, not romance in the, in the way of, like, a romantic comedy, mm. romance, and the way that it's it's written, and the use of the language, and I, I think of them as being romantic in the sense that it, it's someone enamoured with like the first flush of science. Yes, like um, oh god, imagine what we can do with that. Yeah, um, and 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 running with that with the Invisible Man, it's it feels very much like that, and the character is sort yeah. of warped by that. In uh, the Time Machine, um, it doesn't take long for the, <laughs> the for the dis- for the discovery to turn sour. Yes, well, someone someone nicks his time machine very quickly. Well, yeah, so the, first of all, the, uh, to come back to Stevenson again, mm-hmm. it's got this, H.G. Um, Wells was following Stevenson and people like Ryder Haggard. And they had to ask him to stop. <laughs> but no, that's why he had this kind of romantic sure. sort of feeling, because they, they'd sort of brought back a, a, a romantic um, sentiment to writing. Mm-hmm. Um, but it starts with the told tale. Yes. The whole thing is um, a person at a dinner table yep. recounting their travels. Yeah. How how do you feel about this sort of meta narrative framing device and stuff, where you've got 
could that like it's a like Wuthering Heights mm. is like that. Yeah. Where it's told entirely in flashback yeah. through the the story of the the old nurse. Does it add anything to a story? Yes, I think so because okay. you're constantly aware of another audience member, which is interesting because not True. all no, you know novels you sometimes you don't think about yourself because that's the way the novel is meant to make you think. Yep. But when you're constantly thinking of um, the other men in the room, the yes. other men of science, and you're, you're thinking like, why aren't they interrupting? Yep. Why? Are, <laughs> how are they feeling about this? Yeah. Well, it's like um, around the world in eighty days as well. Mm. With you know, there's always the looming threat of the adventurous society. Who yeah. Are going yeah. To be waiting to hear about all of this. It's interesting though, isn't it? Because it's like. On one hand, it really reduces the stakes because mm-hmm. we know it makes it. Yep. So, uh, so if anything, it places more emphasis on that the scientific exploration side of things. Sure. This story is really just an excuse to talk to about warlocks. That's the, yeah, <laughs> and that's the thing that feels most like Vern. It's like yes. I came up with a story to keep the publishers happy in order to detail. What I am excited about. Heavily, heavily detailed. And what H.G. Wells is excited about in this one is What warlocks. I reckon about electricity. <laughs> now, the time traveller is not above suspicion. He has a touch of whim about him. And you don't want to get involved with scientists who have a touch of whim. That's how you end up getting murdered by experiments. The serious people who took him seriously never felt quite sure of his deportment. They were somehow aware that trusting their reputations for judgment with him was like furnishing a nursery with eggshell china. These are very, very serious men, and they go to great lengths to make sure everyone else is being serious around them. Look here, says the medical man. Are you perfectly serious? Or is this a trick, like that ghost you showed us last Christmas? So we learn by this that the time traveller has either faked a, a ghost or maybe debunked one. But clearly there is a, a good reason to believe that the, um, this time machine stuff is the kind of thing he would be capable of faking and perhaps inclined to. And exposing paranormal frauds was all the rage. In the same year as the Time Machine's publication, the Society for Psychical Research were outing the skillful con artist Usapia Palladino. From what I can tell, she would conduct seances in which objects and letters would fly about the place, as per for a seance, and she'd pull this off by either puppeteering them with invisible hairs or just lifting tables with her foot. And if you questioned her, she would be prone to let fly with the, quote, most picturesque and energetic insults of the flowery Neapolitan dialect. Not only was she caught out many times, she also repeatedly admitted she was a fraud, and somehow still managed to convince people otherwise. And it wasn't like she was convincing a carny crowd. She had Marie Curie's husband, Pierre, persuaded that she was on some kind of new frontier of science. Harry Houdini said, Palladino cheated at Cambridge, she cheated in Laguella, She cheated in New York, and yet each time she was caught cheating, the spiritualists upheld her, excused her, and forgave her. Truly, their logic sometimes borders on the humorous. It's hard not to be impressed with someone who can make their fame and fortune by duping the world's enlightened by kicking tables. But anyway, the time traveller takes pains to illustrate he is not doing any trickery. He asks his guests to check the table. He places his miniature on before it disappears. But he doesn't actually do a great job of providing rock-hard evidence. And he's generally pretty shady. For one thing, his name is dashed out like a naughty word. Although it's perhaps a blessing we don't actually get a name. In Wells' original short story, The Chronic Argonauts, he is called Moses Nebogipfel. Perhaps anonymity is the way to go. He's also very unscientific on some of the details. I'm afraid I cannot convey the peculiar sensations of time travelling. They are excessively unpleasant. 
Then there's his preparation, which is also anything but scientific. He travels almost a million years into the future without literally any supplies, a camera, any equipment to collect samples, even a notepad or a change of clothes. And all he brings back with him to prove that he's been to the future is a couple of dried flowers. The only hard evidence we have that he's not having us all on is the miniature time machine disappearing and then the narrator at the end catching the traveller himself disappearing on his full-size machine. But even then, he disappears like a phantasm, almost as if Usapia has just booted him under a table. He could have even quickly proved his case with a test run to the near future. His guest, the editor, asked for some scoops from the next week, saying, Tell us about Rosebury meaning the Earl of Rosebury, who was then running for Prime Minister. According to Roger Luckhurst's notes, the editor could be fishing for an idea of his success in his Prime Ministerial campaign, or after the success of one of his racehorses, or even for a word in his involvement with a sex scandal surrounding him and Oscar Wilde. Okay, so yeah, it starts with the time traveller saying, check this out, walking out the room and returning half-dressed, run ragged saying, I've just done some time travelling, yeah. bear with me, I'm going to have a change of clothes, please make me some food, I'm yeah. starving. And he comes back in the room and he tells mm-hmm. um, what they uh, what he's seen. And he ends up in the year 800, 2701. Many, in like in impossibly far in the future, like longer than recorded human history by like 20 times. And he finds himself among these um, rather pleasant looking childlike people. <coughs> Who are afraid of the dark. Afraid of the dark bit um timid yeah generally um but kind of elfin and are they elfin or are they I, I just mean like they they are ch- yeah juvenile looking sure i seem to have talked a lot recently about the golden age on this podcast it was the first age of man described by ovid and features prominently in don quixote and since then it's cropped up in at least two episodes on robert louis stevenson and here we are again when the time traveller arrives in 803rd century Surrey, he finds the Eloy living in a new golden age, right down to the vegetarianism. In fact, one of the first things the time traveller says when he arrives back in 1895 is, Save me some of that mutton. I'm starving for a bit of meat. We learn that due to the Eloy's frugivorous diet, horses, cattle, sheep and dogs have followed the ichthyosaurus into extinction. Humankind has returned to its pre-agricultural days, living in golden age bliss. But of course, you can't return to innocence. Weld shows, like Aldous Huxley would in Brave New World, that achieving constant happiness exacts a grave toll on intelligence and freedom. The first Eloy the Traveller sees is a very beautiful and graceful creature, but indescribably frail. The Eloy are curly-haired, lack facial hair, have minute ears, small red mouths, mild eyes and pointy chins. So they have effeminate mouths, elfin chins and curly hair suggestive of cherubs. Their ears presumably have grown smaller because they don't need them. They have no predators they are aware of, so have all the evolutionary impetus of cattle. The Eloi live among ruins. In fact, the first thing the time traveller sees is a colossal sphinx. Now in Sophocles' play, Oedipus the King, the sphinx asks her famous riddle, which creature has one voice and yet becomes four-footed and two-footed and three-footed? If her riddle went unsolved, the Sphinx would kill and eat her contestants, just as the Eloi seem incapable of understanding the situation they have found themselves in, and so are fed upon. By Wells's time, Thomas Carlyle had declared the new riddle of the Sphinx to be the labour question, the question of organising the workforce and managing the working classes. As we'll see, the Eloi are the destiny of a ruling class that fails to do so. On a simpler level, the Sphinx, an icon of the ancient world, is the first sign that the Traveller will not be discovering a future he would have hoped for. 
This is supported by the Eloi treating the traveller as if I had come from the sun, indicating a return to the most primitive form of religion, solar worship. One thing that's interesting to note is that in this false utopia, mankind has devolved into androgyny, with fewer distinctions between the genders. The traveller says, We see some beginnings of this even in our own time, and in this future age it was complete. The 1890s saw the rise of the new woman, which according to Roger Luckhurst was a cultural and political explosion of women writers advocating equal rights, mocked by social conservatives as manly women who wished to abolish sexual difference itself. At the same time, you had dandies like Oscar Wilde, urbane, sophisticated homosexuals or effeminate men. To get a sense of just how apocalyptic some people found the appearance of non-traditional gender roles, you only need to hear from Max Nordau, a social critic who in 1892 described the rise of mannish women and womanish men as the dusk of nations. And the time traveller certainly sees something doomy in the Eloy's looks, saying they have the hectic beauty of consumptives. Clearly disease is being coded into the Eloy. The world they live in may have the green of a new Eden, but is also infected with the green of verdigris, of decay. So I just want to talk about Morlocks. Morlocks. Um, which has become a, sort of, become a sort of generic term for uh, sci-fi fantasy bad guy. Oh, really? Where in like a D&D campaign, Morlocks exist in the D&D universe. Right. But a Morlock is like, it's the same kind of meaning as like MacGuffin. Where right. MacGuffin represents pointless thing to drive the plot forward. A Morlock is a bad guy. A bad monster. Oh, I see. Cool. Um, and they're kind of kind of like hairy, ape-like, um, brawny. Yeah, the pred- predator to the Eloy's prey. Yeah, and they live underground. Yep. Yes, the uh, the Morlocks surface every now and again and just and spirit away the Eloy. Yeah. Presumably to eat them. Yeah. You only have to read his. Um, have you read his short history of the world? I've not. It's great. I've I have it's not. Really I never binged Wells. Really? I read War of the Worlds and listened to the musical a lot, and The Time Machine and Island of Doctor Moreau, but I never got into extended extended Wells. Do you think anyone's ever used the phrase "I've never binged Wells" in an, in like another context? Yeah, like well, 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 well fancier, spotting. well fancier monthly. <laughs> you got arrested for belligerent <laughs> well fancying. Uh, no, the um, yeah, let's talk about the Morlocks some more. After the time traveller recovers his machine, he says, I was surprised to find it had been carefully oiled and cleaned. I have suspected since that the Morlocks had even partially taken it to pieces while trying in their dim way to grasp its purpose. This sets them further in contrast with the Eloy, about whom the time traveller reflected almost immediately. This may seem egotism on my part. I fancied even then that there was a certain lack of the interest I might have expected in them. The loss of curiosity is a defining tragedy in mankind's slow death. While the decadent proto-Eloi stagnated, the lower-class proto-Morlocks were kept sharp by hard lives. A famous punch cartoon from 1843 called Capital and Labour depicted a literal upper class living a bourgeois life above ground, while underground there was a working class subjected to scenes of injury, death and child labour. And indeed, the upper-lower denotations could be applied quite literally. 19th century London saw the construction of its first underground railway, tunnelled out by a labouring class often subjected to the grimmest conditions. And their potential for protest was beginning to make the fat cat's whiskers twitch. 1893 saw a large-scale industrial strike that left the upper classes fearful that workers could hold the country to ransom. The Morlocks have gone a lot further than that. 
The time traveller noticed that there appeared to be no elderly population among the Eloi and no crematoria either. At the time, cremation was a hot new idea, a reformist, hygienic, but very unpopular alternative to burial. As it turns out, of course, the Morlocks are feeding on the Eloi, farming them and keeping them contained. Not only physically, but genetically. It's been suggested that the Morlocks interbreeding the Eloi is a criticism of positive eugenics. Another cheerful idea that was being floated around at the time. One nasty little detail for you. The time traveller notes that the Eloi wear leather garments. But given that there are no domestic animals left, where do you think the leather is coming from? It seems either that it was a mistake or more likely that the Morlocks are keeping their cattle cosy by not wasting what they can't eat. The name Morlock may come from the Old Testament, in which children are sacrificed to Moloch, the Canaanite god, who in Paradise Lost is the Antichrist. Or it may come from Morlax, a name given to an ethnic population in the Balkans who were traditionally described as barbaric or primitive. Eloi, meanwhile, seems to derive from the Hebrew word for God, Elohim. And when he, he jumps forward in time... He continues to jump forward in time until he sees the eventual heat death of the universe, pretty much. He does, yeah. And if you ask me, he spends a bit too much time like taking in the sights when he does that. He should probably have just been like, oh, that, this oh, is actually shit, the end death. of the heat universe. Death. <laughs> <laughs> reverse. You know. it, interesting that he... It's one of these ones where Wyndham does it and Vern do it do it Vern do it Vern do it Vern does it where they accidentally predict the future or they predict science that wasn't known at the time by making logical extrapolations of what they knew at that point Mm. because they were still just getting their head around the fact that the earth was older than 2,000 years or whatever yeah you know the fossil record and realizing that there was this millennia millions billions of years of the universe but then also the realization that energy is finite and the world will well the universe will cease to be one day because we run out of energy yeah you know energy doesn't replicate itself perfectly so one day there will be no energy left to replicate itself and the universe will stop existing which is a pretty advanced concept for a sci-fi writer in 1895 which i suppose is another thing that makes it a romantic mm-hmm. um science fiction story or science story because it is so much more conjecture and definitely guesswork yeah in the romantic phase of man's relationship with science. John S. Partington sets out the four distinct stages in the time traveller's theory of what has happened by 802701. He first suspects, upon seeing the Eloi, that they are living in a kind of pastoral communism. Then, when he gets a whiff of the Morlocks, that the Eloi are still the class in charge. Third, he suspects that the world is on the brink of a Morlockian uprising. And finally, he realises that it's the Morlocks who are running the show. His despair mounts as the truth is revealed. Then I tried to preserve myself from the horror that was coming upon me by regarding it as a rigorous punishment of human selfishness. Man had been content to live in ease and delight upon the labours of his fellow man, had taken necessity as his watchword and excuse, and in the fullness of time necessity had come home to him. The time traveller realises that efforts to forge a world of comfort and physical ease had resulted in an automated society. As Michael Sayer puts it, Chatter incapable of abstraction, incessant distraction, sexuality divorced from or unconscious of procreation, the Eloi live in the pure present that bubbles up between the cracks in the global manufactory of the future. He may be horrified, but that doesn't stop the time traveller from being tempted by the way of life among the Eloi. Now, the Morlocks really did a number on them, and they have no survival instincts whatsoever. 
So when one Eloy swimming in the river gets carried off by a current, the others just leave her to drown. Luckily, the time traveller is there to save her. She turns out to have the name of Wiener and latches onto the time traveller for the duration of his stay. He finds little Wiener to be a great comfort and... It really is a toss-up for creepiest moment in the book between the Eloy wearing their own skin or the implied sexual relations between the 19th century man and the 803rd century child woman. It is Wiener who gives the time traveller the flowers shortly before she perishes, either at the hands of the Morlocks or in a forest fire started by her 19th century pal. Purging fire, the friend of time-sex criminals everywhere. Unless, of course, she made it, in which case the couple could even be reunited, as we are told by the end of the novel. The time traveller vanished three years ago, and as everybody knows now, he has never returned. Perhaps temptation got the better of him, and he returned to 802701 to find Wiener. Having seen the future, perhaps this bright young thing from the 19th century realised he was not so young, and decided to beat his own species' decline to the punch. Wells certainly found that similar arcs of decline were common to every lifespan. In an article titled Zoological Regression, Wells wrote, Every respectable citizen of the professional classes passes through a period of activity and imagination, of liveliness and eccentricity, of sturm and drang. He shocks his aunts. Presently, however, he becomes dull. He enters a profession. Suckers appear on his head and he studies. The revelations of Darwin had brought about intense interest in voluntary decline. Roger Luckhurst describes those who were fascinated by sea squirts that seemed to give up the freedoms of their early stages of development, limpet themselves onto rocks, and then regress. This kind of degeneration was often analogically extended to become an all-encompassing moral and social theory that could explain a sense of decadence, of cultural decline, that pervaded late Victorian Britain. Wells describes one of these sea squirts, the Ascidian, losing its tail and living henceforth in an idyll of contentment, glued head downwards to a stone. Growing suckers on his head, he studies. There's also a, a removed chapter about a kangaroo, which isn't in okay. mine. Um, <laughs> the whole thing's about a kangaroo. Uh, well, I think he, he goes a bit further forward in time and kills a kangaroo and then realizes that it's probably um, sentient no it's pr- it's probably like a, a, a next evolution along from the eloy okay um <laughs> okay but yeah i can see why that one got cut just in case the eloy weren't stark enough a prospect wells's traveler moves forward in time again where he sees giant crabs hunting butterflies and further still to a dark era of liverworts and lichens These seem to be the ultimate deteriorations of the two species. And in a deleted chapter, we find a midway point. The traveller lands and sees something described as a plantigrade, a hopping rabbit-like creature, terrorised by giant armoured centipedes. Where do you think he ends up? What do you mean? Oh, at the end. He disappears. Yeah. I'd I'd like to think the past, actually, because I think it was, he's got this fascination with the future. I think it would be one of those sort of poetically tragic endings if he ended up huddled with the cavemen round a fire because he horrified himself for the future yeah yeah i don't know if i've recommended this before but there's a really good debate Ooh. between um oh actually you won't like it but maybe some of the <laughs> listeners will <laughs> it's between like it? because um it's between a, a, an american writer i think and will self that's why you won't like it and okay. they <laughs> s- the, the debate is 1984 or brave new world who's in brave new world's corner self I might actually watch it then because that's um, it might it might be nice to see Will Self agreeing with me for once. Well, he, I mean, he 
clearly wins. Um, okay. It easily wins. Well, because it's, it's and part of it is the Soma thing. He's like, what's more likely that there's going to be a another totalitarian leader like at the beginning of the 20th century, or that we're all addicted to something that gives us instant gratification? Like Which that's is, the kind of yeah, thing we talk about all the time, and we're surrounded by. Uh, yeah, because there's currently one, I'd say one, big brother country in the world, and that's North Korea. Mm. and everybody can see from the outside how terrible an idea that is. Ten years after The Time Machine was published, Wells wrote, The utopia of a modern dreamer must needs differ in one fundamental aspect from the nowheres and utopias men planned before Darwin quickened the thought of the world. Those were all perfect and static states, a balance of happiness won forever against the forces of unrest and disorder that inhere in things. But the modern utopia must not be static, but kinetic, must shape not as a permanent state, but as a hopeful stage, leading to a long ascent of stages. And in his short history of the world, he wrote, Man is still only adolescent. His troubles are not the troubles of senility and exhaustion, but of increasing and still undisciplined strength. His words remain cautionary, but are less apocalyptic than the portrait we find in The Time Machine, his fluctuating optimism and despair at the state of the world is one of the interesting aspects of Wells, which we'll have to wait until the next time we cover one of his works or his life. For now, I leave you with the words of Michael Sayer, who said that in The Time Machine, Wells the prophet of improvement meets Wells the fictionist at the crossroads of an ambiguous modernity. Um, well, I would like to do a lot more Wells. I want to do more through Wells as well. I want to talk his... about War of the Worlds, definitely. Cool. It's one of my favourites. Have you seen seen or heard the musical? Uh, no. I, I mean, I've heard <coughs> it. Yeah. It's, it's kind of like a rock opera, isn't it? It's like, oh, come on, it's set in the middle. <laughs> Sing the whole thing, I'll use it yeah. as the intro. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it, it, it is a rock opera, mm. and it's a lot of heavy synthesizer. Right. So, like, it's a proper sci-fi musical, and it actually hits <clears throat> most of the... It hits all the beats of the story. Okay. It's not like they they cut anything out. It has all of the major climactic bits, like the um, the sinking of the last battleship and the uh, the mad engineer and the revelation at the end that humanity was saved by dumb luck. Yeah. But we won't get into that too much now. I think we should do War of the Worlds at some point now. Yeah, and I'd love to do the Invisible Man. Yes. Yeah. Definitely. I've never read The Invisible Man, so it would be a good chance for me to... Oh, really? never read it. Oh, you're in for a treat. Okay. I've read it so many times. <laughs> <laughs> Real easy yeah. Halloween costume. Yeah, don't, don't show up. <laughs> <laughs>